Tradition. Do you ever wonder why some customs and beliefs get passed down in the way that they do? Generation after generation. Do you ever wonder why we only hear a handful of stories? Kristen Richardson did. If we know how divisive this thing has been and how these sort of elegant events can cover over the way the patriarchy functions, then maybe we have more weapons in our arsenal to stop this. From a family of debutantes, the author of The Season chose not to debut. But as curiosity drove her to research this enduring tradition, she learned that the role some debutantes play in a family story is not quite as simple as it seems. I'm Kristen Richardson, and this is a lesson on the unwritten history of women. Kristen, what is your earliest memory of being creative? I have a couple of early memories of what I would call creativity. I make little booklets and draw them and and whatnot. But the other thing I used to do was I would make charts. Like we were not religious, but when my grandmother was around, we would have to go to Catholic church and I didn't get communion or anything. She would give me a piece of paper and I would make charts of people's shoes (laughs) and draw them and stuff like that. So I was always assessing what was happening. (laughs) It was a way to keep me busy. So the hierarchy of shoes of people as I watched them go up to get their communion, I don't know if that was the message that (laughs) was intended, Um, but that's what I got. And you were raised Catholic then. Did you eventually do your communion? I did my communion. My grandmother was very religious, my mother's mother. But otherwise, once that was done, we didn't go to church or anything like that. So it was uh, early, yes. My brother didn't, he's younger and he he didn't have communion or anything like that. So I've been researching girls coming of age And what are the rituals, if any, that we have? But what is it that we teach girls to come of age? And one of the things that I came across was your book, The Season, which was a social history of the debutante ball. You came from a family of debutantes, and then you chose not to debut Can you tell me a little bit about that? First of all, the timing is really important. It was the 90s and it was a time of grunge and the idea to me of doing that just seemed completely alien to anything I was doing, which was like smoking pot and going to concerts. So to end up at a debutante ball coming out just was really not what I would have done. And I was already a very strong feminist and it just didn't fit. And my father's family, which is the debutante side of the family, they didn't really care that much. They were not gunning for it at all. My dad is completely an eccentric person anyway. He didn't care. And so I wasn't directed into it, but I did have friends who were, who had the grandmother who was like, you're doing this. You don't have a choice. (laughs) 
you want to go to college, you got to do this. There's a lot of heavy handed kind of people really putting pressure, but it didn't feel like it fit into my life as I was living it. And it felt ostentatious having been brought up not show any wealth. It was like, here's a moment when you all of a sudden change your mind and you do this sort of massive display. None of my friends was wanting to do it either. So when you're that age, you look around and you see what your friends are doing. And that has a heavy influence as well. And how did mom and grandmom respond? Because dad was okay. How were they? My mother's from a totally different background. She's a middle-class Irish Catholic. So she didn't really have that in her culture. And my grandmother had missed her debut because she was driving taxis during the war mm-hmm. <laughs> in World War II. So she was driving taxis around Newport, Rhode Island. And I kind of got married quickly and got to avoid the whole thing. So what made you start to explore the material more deeply? I want to get into the history, what you uncovered, and why you chose to uncover it. I went to college and then I moved to France. And then when I moved back to the United States from France, it was during the Bush administration, the the second Bush administration. And I was amazed by how interested people were in it again. Like people were coming out. It had this resurgence. Some of my younger cousins who are from the South, they were doing it. And I thought, God, I would have thought this thing was dead and gone. And also I'm talking about the white debut. There's an entire black American debut that's totally different, which yeah, there's a quinceañera, the quinceañera, which is And there's quince yeah, there's quinceañera, which is related, but I would say different because it's religious. million dollar industry, by the way, is the quinceañera industry, which I, I know was it's incredible fascinated by it's gives you a whole other perspective on why these things exist. But I wanted to specify that I'm talking about the white because the trajectory of the black debutante ritual is totally different. So mm-hmm. when I came back, I was seeing all these people getting into it again. And I was just really interested by that. Like, why is this happening again? Because when you think about it, it's seemingly a very arcane ritual that's supposed to get women married. And so I became really curious about what is this now? What are these people getting out of this? What is it for? No one had ever pinpointed why this happens and how it evolved. It's the kind of thing where it's like entering a story into in the middle where everyone's doing it, it's going, and yet no one knows why they're doing it, except that the previous generation had done it. What I eventually figured out was that before the Reformation, if you were a wealthy British aristocrat and you had a bunch of daughters, the best thing that you could do is concentrate all of your wealth into your best, quote unquote, daughter, the most beautiful or the most charming or whatever, and then put the rest of the daughters in convents, pay a convent, a nominal fee, the daughter would live there. And of course, this is not across the board exactly what happened in every instance. And when Henry VIII dissolved the convents during the Reformation, suddenly you couldn't send your daughter to a convent anymore. And there were all these daughters in circulation. So it was just a shock for the parents because now all of a sudden there was nothing you could do with a daughter other than get her married. There was no respectable career. And, and nobody's getting married for love unless there's money attached to it. 
correct? Oh, nobody's getting married for love. Right. That is 200 years away. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Hundreds of years away. Yeah. And and iffy and until really the mid 1800s, I would say. So in any case, what happened is there's this surplus of daughters and it took a while. I guess I should say that the barest beginnings of what we would recognize as the debutante ritual was Queen Elizabeth, so Henry's daughter, started having the daughters of her favored courtiers presented mm-hmm. to her at court. And then she would arrange their marriages and try to make them as politically advantageous to her as she could. So that became the model of a lot of these girls. They never would have gone to court. Court was really small. and But once they needed to get married, it got a bit larger. And so over time, what started at court became bigger and bigger. Population was growing. The aristocracy was growing. Not hugely, but it was growing. And they really needed a place to make these marriages. And so gradually a social season grew and developed in London. It's what everybody's a little Bridgerton, right? Exactly. Yeah. Bridgerton, 100%. That's a perfect yeah. example. And so that, it became like a big swirling thing. And Bridgerton is a, a really good example because you are choosing a partner from a pre-approved group. So it's not anyone but it's not as harsh as like you're marrying this person full stop. So it's like the parents going to watch from the sidelines kind of thinking, okay, well, these two, this is a good match. This isn't a good match. There was lots of meddling and jostling. But the key thing is that those places like assembly rooms and balls were proving grounds. If you could cut it in that space and show that you had the proper manners and even if you were new money, which there's always this myth that it's all old money, but there wouldn't be society if there were not also new money. It's always a balance. And these rooms and this ritual was a way of kind of reconciling the old and new money. I thought it was interesting you were talking about the patroness. And again, because we think of the of a debutante ball as being a powerless place for women in many ways. But the patroness certainly had the power and she was female. So can you talk a little bit about that? I thought this was really interesting too. One of the assembly rooms that I talk about was this place called Almax. And Almax was the highest echelon of the fashionable world and, and the court and elite society in London in the late 17 and early 1800s. And it was run by this board of women, and they were really intense. (laughs) It's actually where the term blackball comes from, because when they were passing along votes, you were people voted on who could be admitted or not. And like a blackball was a way of negating, they put a blackball into a canvas thing. And but anyway, they were these really authoritarian, like very rich aristocratic women, there were like four of them. And they were really strict about who would get in and who wouldn't. There's this classic example of the Duke of Wellington just having won the Battle of Waterloo. They wouldn't let him in because he wasn't wearing the right clothing. So they were really strict. And when I think of women's power, a lot of times like we were not permitted to have traditional power. There were avenues for women to have a softer power or power in a sphere, and this would have been that sphere. But it was very important because Mm -hmm. they're presiding over 
marriages and they're presiding over what society looks like and who's allowed in it. Mm -hmm. And of course, the ramifications of that for politics are huge. And they never held those balls and assemblies when parliament was in session. So they always kept it on a night that everyone could come. So Mm -hmm. it was definitely very political. Mm -hmm. And the women knew that and they wielded that power. Did you research Black debutantes as well? Yeah, I did. Tell me how that differs. The Black debut is really interesting. There are always African-American fancy dress balls from before the Revolutionary War. Free and enslaved people both had huge events like that. But the Black debut originated at sort of during the uplift movement. So alongside the idea of respectability and showing the worthiness and trying to build respect within the community and connections within the community. So mid-19th century, same time as just the wider uplift movement. And it was really popular for Black professionals chiefly, like it was, you know, wealthier Black people, and wanting to give an opportunity to their daughters to display their elegance and meet marriage partners also. And so so very similar Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. It looked pretty similar. White dresses, curtsy, Mm -hmm. that as the escort. So a lot of it was really aesthetically very similar. Mm -hmm. But there was always a focus on professionalism. There were getting into school, furthering education, getting scholarships, because, of course, that was the way for advancement. Mm -hmm. A really good profession, lawyer, doctor, you know, that kind of track for white America. You know, it was more about maintaining a social class hierarchy. And then across the 20th century, it just kept evolving. Their different clubs present debutantes. I mean, it's huge. You talked about the power actually of what was past, and it was a way for across generations men to exchange wealth with one another via the conduit of the wife, and that you were finding these things inside of the journals. So Can you tell me what was one of the more interesting journal entries that you found among the debutante records? There's a woman, she was an American debutante who just wrote constantly of how bored she was and how her life had no meaning. It was also very lyrically written, so she was a really good writer. But I was struck by the difference between the sort of stereotype of the Scarlett O'Hara, like vixen, with this woman who was like constantly longing for someone to talk to and some intellectual stimulation and was lamenting that she had run out of books to read and wishing that she didn't have to get married. And so the the image of the debutante people think initially is like a dizzy whirl and she's silly and stupid, but a lot of these women had really a lot of complex thoughts about their positions and what they had to do. And uh, yeah, so hers always stuck out for me because it was so sad. It it really gives you a different window. She maybe understood her duty to her family in a different way, which is interesting. She did. And it was this feeling of, I can't escape. I remember reading her say, I stay constantly at home because she's not allowed to be out in society 
without a chaperone or without everything pre-approved. But she was in Virginia on a rural kind of plantation. So Mm -hmm. there were a lot of white women who were psychologically trapped in those environments. Yeah. How did you get access to these journals? Actually, that took a lot of research. What I ended up doing is, and this really speaks to women's history. I went to a lot of historical societies and I relied pretty heavily on librarians who are amazing Mm -hmm. people. They are. But the other thing I did was I was looking up the names of big families Mm. and trying to go to physically to different historical societies. Like I went to one in Charleston, which is debutante heavy zone. And I went through and I looked at these sort of famous local families to try to find letters and journals that were from the women in the family. And what you end up finding is just papers and papers and papers, men's papers. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, there'll be like a little leaflet with like women's letters. And it just going to the physical places and seeing that for myself was really important because it shows you just women's history is just a tiny sliver. It's like just you see it in the physical collection of family papers. Who knows what women produced in those families, what they had, but no one kept it. And so I found things there. I read a lot of letters. And of course, there's also, if you're reading secondary academic literature, there are references to certain journals. So I found things that way as well. It's interesting when I was researching, it talks about that many of these things are invitation only and that when you see the debutantes interviewed, at least in the last like three or four years, there you say, my parents told me that many of the traditions are secret, so I cannot talk to you about what's happening I can't publicly post the photos. Then Borat does that movie and gets underground and gets in that scene and does that ridiculously horrifying scene at the debutante ball. And did you find that secrecy as well while you were doing the research? It's a little tricky. I didn't run into tons of secrecy. That's partly because I came from that world. And so people felt like they recognized me in in maybe how people recognize someone they think is like them. And I had been to a lot of those parties as a teenager. And the ones that I got invited to that were hard to get invitations to, one was the New Orleans crew ball. And that one, my uncle's college best friend had been the queen of the carnival and got me into that. The others I had attended, but people also do want to talk about this stuff. So they do and they don't. And secrecy is an interesting component of the debut. But most of these parties, almost all of them are reported on by the local press. They're in those little magazines that are like the social magazines of the individual towns. So they don't really want secrecy as much as they want to control how it's viewed. They want good press. Mm -hmm. I talked to the photographers when I was there, like the people are always like, they're so jaded. They're always taking these photos of of the debutantes and they have a lot to say. And all those people who are there working at the event, they're always really interesting because they tend to work at a lot of those events and getting their perspective is really interesting. What did the girls doing it now see it as if that American socialite was an example of wanting so much more women have so much more in this moment 
but they are still obviously encouraged to be likable and to be marriageable and to be all of those things. So what is a modern day woman's perspective on this? Sometimes they would talk about tradition, which is very, in a way, really honestly meaningless because Mm -hmm. it's just a way to say, no, I'm not going to get into this. But in some cases, they really didn't inquire further themselves. So they're like, it's tradition and that's plenty. It's a fun party. So that was enough for a lot of the women that I spoke with. But more interesting is the young woman who's very kind of brand focused and sees it as Mm. like an outgrowth of her brand. And the idea is that it's networking and building a larger community. Those are things that in the Black debut have always been important. Like it's always been much more focused on community and building community. And there are these sorority relationships. And then there's the, there are these groups like Jack and Jill or like, so you're maintaining these connections. In the white ritual, that is less true. It isn't really, it's like a one-time thing. You don't really have a continuous relationship with the organization. So it was interesting to me to hear white Debbie Hunts talking about really getting into networking and like getting mentors and all of this stuff that I had heard for a long time from black debutantes. And I was like, oh, this is interesting that they're getting wise to this as like a strategy for a more modern iteration of this thing. As I said, I'm trying to understand more about what can be girls' rites of passage. So for those women who are attached to the debutante ball, if there were no more debutante balls tomorrow, what would we have instead to show our rite of passage. This was a really interesting uh, topic that I've thought about too, because there really aren't any no. secular rituals, right? right? So this is a secular ritual. and But even the religious rituals are not, in my mind, set up to give you the tools to fight the patriarchy. Let's put it that way. No, and certainly the debutante is, ritual is not giving <laughs> no. those tools at all because it's it's it exists to continue that. But this is something that people talked about. They that one of the attractions of the debut is that it does mark the passage of time and it does mark the sort of liminal space between childhood and adulthood that we don't sufficiently honor. But what I also wondered about was, well, there are none of these rituals for men, right? So that's how you get a clue into, is this the patriarchy or is this not the patriarchy? There's no debut for men. <laughs> so <laughs> actually, they have them in the Black community. They do have botillions, which are for men, but mm. that's something else. Within Judaism, bar and bat mitzvah are totally about a coming of age ritual, but it's religious. Mm-hmm. And the same with quinceanera has the religious aspect. So those uh, religious rituals are not as hard to come by. Mm. But yeah, we have lost ritual in a secular sense. It is problematic. People would really enjoy a marker of the passage of time that's relevant to them. But do I know what would be relevant to a large group of people? Mm. I don't, but yeah. But I do think it's important and relevant to explore that. Again, from my perspective, it would be about using your voice and leadership. That's what would be an effective, and I I went to brownies and girl guides, and so there was a little bit of that in there, but it was much younger. And then by the time you, you age up, it's not cool to do that anymore. And then it's replaced at least 
culturally with a conversation about boys or partnership or love. There's so it's so complex, but uh, I'm thanking you for trying to answer <laughs> that question for me. You can look at something like prom, where everyone does that. It's like a sweet moment for parents and their kid in some cases, but it's not a ritual. A ritual is something that does have a religious feeling to it a lot of the time because you walk through something on that other people have walked through and you know you're essentially professing your belief in it and so yeah the absence of that is it's it's an important thing to look into why don't we have that yeah it probably tell you a lot about the culture mm-hmm. i know that the movement is in China and Russia now. And those are quintessential patriarchal societies from my outside point of view. So I'm curious what your perspective is. So China and Russia, it's fascinating. It's particularly fascinating now, given what the war in Ukraine, and we're seeing what that authoritarian state has wrought. But in China, most of Chinese culture was destroyed in the cultural revolution. Like people don't know who their ancestors were. They don't have family records. And so it's always been very appealing for wealthy Chinese families to seek out rich culture from other places. I talked to one Chinese American woman who was telling me about how she didn't know who her grandparents even really were, like beyond her grandparents, and that she knew a lot of people whose very wealthy families were going to England and like buying entire libraries and buying all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. People don't have connection to long lineage unless they're in Taiwan. In China, it became really popular as a way to show your status, have a debutante daughter come out. It's also networking as well. And then in Russia, the debutante ritual fits really well in authoritarian societies, actually, because the daughter is viewed as this kind of crown jewel for her parents. The other thing is, just to go back to China for a second, debutante daughter is a great way to distract from your kind of sketchy business (laughs) potential. (laughs) And here, I'll give you a a good example. The head of Huawei, Ren Zhenfei, had a daughter who came out at a ball in Paris at the same time as he was being investigated under the Espionage Act Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And he is notoriously publicity shy. He never goes to anything, talks to anyone, but he went to her ball. Mm -hmm. And it was such a great kind of reputation laundering for him. Like it was an ability to be like, I'm doing this elegant thing. Look at my beautiful daughter. She goes to Harvard. She's a ballerina. It's like shifting that focus in a way that you get to pivot. And that has been really, really seductive for Russian oligarch children as well. For example, in Russia, that's in this traditional 18th century dance hall, the Bolshoi perform. It's insane. It's like having Yo-Yo Ma at a New York dub ball or something. The imperial feeling that people are now understanding about Putin and the Russian upper class, the oligarchs. It shows that focus on restoring Russia's imperial grandeur, the daughter of 
Dmitry Peskov, who's the guy who is this press secretary who's out here telling us that nothing's happening mm-hmm. in Ukraine. His daughter, she came out at that ball and got tons of favorable attention. It covers up the ugliness of, it can cover up the ugliness of what people are doing. Even though it's, I don't think this was your intent when you began, I can't, I won't speak for you, but there's a, a, an investigative quality to what you're doing. And in this moment, as women, when you, you talk about women having such a small piece of history, and we didn't, obviously, but it was not recorded. So now right. you're bringing visibility and light to this. And I looked at some of the book reviews, and there's some snark because of people being mad about what they feel, oh, yeah. right, is an attack. It's not about your yeah. journalism or your writing or anything. It's an attack on the tradition and the values. And so how did you receive the negative attention, if any, that you got? Because you did get access. And then w- does that heightened visibility make you less inclined to want to uncover these the aspects that you're covering that are less than favorable for the people who are debuting. No one has ever asked me that before. And I'm so glad you did because it's a really important piece of all of this. So yeah, there were people who were really mad. They saw it as an expose. They saw it as their traditional world was being critiqued and that I was so very harsh. And uh, I don't feel any anxiety about that at all. (laughs) I feel like... That is absolutely fine. I was expecting that. I come from that world. I know what those people are like. Even though I have a lot of compassion for the experiences of a lot of the women in that system, that does not negate the fact that they were themselves in many ways violent. They were violent towards women who had less than them. If they were white, they were violent towards women who were not white. So the the structure is one of patriarchy. It is one of violence. And so when someone comes at me and it's like, oh, it's just a pretty thing and you're so harsh, I'm like, dude, <laughs> like really, that's not, it's just, that's not what's happening. One of the main aims of the book was convincing all women that this is their history too. It's not just rich women. It's not just white women. It's all women. It made an impact on all women. Mm-hmm. And it does because... The debutantes, if you think about socialites, set the tone for what trickles down. Now we have the influencer or the celebrity sets the tone because women can work. They can have agency in different ways, right? So we have yeah, this group of women who is constantly setting the tone for every other woman. Right, and, ta- and, and deciding who was allowed in the room and laws that were created to control the marriages of upper-class women also applied to women who are not upper-class. Everyone was affected. So there's a lot of things that were organized around controlling the lives of debutantes that, that controlled the lives of other women as well. That is horrifying and powerful because I hadn't actually thought of it that way, but that's 100% of course it is. Those men trying to control their own wealth. It's very similar now. (laughs) We have laws now. Because the daughter was a crown jewel. She was portable wealth. My goal was not to make it seem 
elegant and and fabulous. My goal was to show how elegant and fabulous things can be destructive agents of culture and pit women against each other to the advantage of men. I'm like, yeah, come at me. I was totally anticipating it. It was more for me the safety factor because I often, too, if there's something that I'm not Something when it comes to patriarchy, I just get very brave and very mouthy and very willing to speak what I believe is a different truth than one has been one that has been recorded. And Mm -hmm. but I have noted films and I'm often seeing films where journalists and it's usually the journalist, a writer uncovering and just exploring more deeply then becomes a target. And so it's fortunate that has not happened in your case, but there has to be a willingness when we're doing this kind of work in this moment. And this is this podcast is called Voice Lessons. There's a willingness when you're using your voice through your creative work to speak the unspeakable and to inform in a way that has not happened previously. It's a kind of leadership. I I am also like what you were describing that I feel like, yeah, I get really heated when I feel like the patriarchy is bearing down on all of us. But I want to say too, that I'm a rich white lady from a supportive family. So I don't really feel like there's much risk for me in this at all. But um, you don't have to have a, you don't have to participate. There's many women who just choose to be silent. They and do, you but, I feel like it's, but I feel like that's the bare minimum of what I can give. There is nothing that can take my sort of financial security away. It's familial, like it's old. And I just feel like there aren't risks. So if someone like me isn't going to take risks, then like I could not look at myself in the mirror if I'm just like, oh, like I'm going to let the people who are at greater risk do it. My goal for this book was to show people their history and try to make it better. If we know how divisive this thing has been and how these sort of elegant events can cover over the way the patriarchy functions, then maybe we have more weapons in our arsenal to stop this. Your book was a Smithsonian Best History Book of 2019. How did it feel, to that visibility question, how did it feel when you were given that honor? And how did it change the trajectory of the book and also how you felt talking about the book? I was thrilled and so flattered. And But what was really nice about it, too, is that the Smithsonian is such a venerated institution. And so... People sometimes have thought the topic of this book is fluffy, or maybe they don't take it seriously, or they think it's silly. And having that was definitely like, maybe it's not so silly. Mm. (laughs) This is a serious book about a serious subject that matters in the culture. And of course, having that imprimatur really brought that home in a way that was useful for my dad. I'm just kidding. He's awesome. But like the family that's like, what has she been doing all these years? It's this Smithsonian. You get it? Do you think women lead differently? And how do you resonate or not with the term of feminine leadership? 
I don't have a problem with the idea of feminine leadership. As long as everyone's in the room and taking care of one another and supporting one another, then feminine leadership ideally comes from a place of having an understanding of one's history. You talked about the violence in the leadership of these women, the patroness as an example. I see feminine leadership as the opposite of what is patriarchal. Right now, I see a lot of people connecting with what I don't think is feminine leadership, which is like the girl boss energy. If you're a guy, you're just a guy, but you're grafting on these sort of girlish accoutrements mm-hmm. to it. Heels. So your I heels think and your lipstick. Really, yeah. That's right. You have your heels, you have your lipstick, but in all other ways, you're basically supporting a patriarchy. Feminine leadership to me, I, I like that is a necessarily feminist leadership that we are, that it's consistently examining oneself to ensure that everyone is heard and that it's not this sort of vicious hierarchy. So I wouldn't necessarily think of it as as gentle. There are all these sort of stereotypes of femininity. I just think of it as ideally more inclusive and less of hierarchy. When we are good leaders, we are good leaders because of having seen the alternative, right? Of having worked really hard to get to a certain place and then being cut down or just being ignored, being completely ignored and seeing man after man climb a ladder and you're just like, what is Mm -hmm. happening? Anyone in any kind of marginalized position is going to have greater knowledge of what it's like to experience being stepped on or ignored or any of that. So the more you are aware of those things, a better leader you are seeing when those kinds of things are happening Mm -hmm. and addressing them. I love that you made the leap from feminine to feminist, because from my perspective, feminine is at the root of feminist, right? It's the same word and it's an extension of that word, but the stereotypes of feminine are what is, which is why your book was so profound in many ways, because that femininity that has been commoditized with the white dress and dad and all of those things has nothing to do with the brand of femininity that I understand it to be. And if a femininity of mother nature and she will rip you a new one if she needs to. (laughs) And that to me is the quintessential femininity and feminism as well, because it's a mother energy. It's that not that motherhood is the ultimate because there are women, many women who will not become mothers. There are 30% of women who will never marry. One in four women is over 40, number one. And 10 years is set to inherit, women are set to inherit $30 trillion in wealth via baby boomers. It won't have anything to do with marriage. Or it might in some cases, but in many cases it won't. complete the sentence. My wish for every other woman is justice. (laughs) That's what I would say. I want justice.
You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com.